This is Shannon Ray Davis, and you are listening to Omega Man Radio. Welcome to my world, the world of the Omega Man. Join us here for the nightly marathon, broadcasting Monday through Friday. You can find us here on YouTube, and we encourage you to report for duty. Get trained up. World of the Saints is coming. You want to be an overcomer and endure till the end. We will teach you how. We cast out devils. We command healing to the sick in Jesus' name. And we preach the full gospel of Jesus Christ to win souls for Jesus. I want to encourage you right now to subscribe right here on YouTube to this channel. Smash the like button and share a link to our live chat room to everyone you know right there on Facebook. Get them to come on out and tune in and join in the fight against the host of hell. If you'd like to support this work financially, we have a PayPal button on our website. We have GoFundMe, Zelly, even Take Bitcoin. And we thank you in advance for partnering with us. Our website is OmegaManRadio.com. One more thing before we start tonight's show. To the demons tuning in. We're coming for you, demon. No demon is safe. Brother Tim, thank you for standing by. Sir, I'm running late. How you doing? <laughs> Overall, I'm doing pretty well. All right. Welcome back. Happy New Year to you, my friend. This is our first program, I think, this year. Yes, it is. Happy New Year to you, too. All right. Folks, welcome back. We're continuing tonight. We're excited to be here with Tim Keys. Tim, you want to open us in prayer? Sure. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you for your goodness to us. And we thank you that wherever we are, you are already there. That we do not need to invite your presence. Your presence is already there and that you're, in fact, inviting us into what you are doing. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, for quickening what we're going to discuss tonight in our hearts and minds to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Tim, the mic is yours. Take it away. Thank you, my friend. Hey, the first thing I do need to let you and your listeners know is that I am recovering from bronchitis. So if I have a coughing fit, I will do my best to mute my microphone so you don't have to hear that over the air. And Shannon, you can just take over for a couple of seconds until I recover myself. But hopefully that won't happen. But just a little quick disclaimer there in case that goes down. So Take a break at any time you need and also make sure you got plenty to drink. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what I'm doing right now. I just took a sip, so... Shannon, I got some a couple of different things I got up my sleeve tonight, so here we go. I'm actually going to try to accomplish two things tonight. Now, the first one, your listeners that have heard me on your show before are aware that the project that I'm involved in, that I've been involved in, 
for almost 40 years now is called God Save the King. And God Save the King is a very in-depth look at the nativity. And the reason that I took up that project is because someone pointed out to me a long time ago, they said, hey, did you know that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th? And I went, what? Now, it didn't shock me, but it was like, okay, all right, what's what's up with that? So I invest, started investigating that, and this was back in the mid-1980s, so it's almost 40 years ago, mid-1980s. I started investigating that, and during my initial investigation, I didn't realize that I was actually making a mistake. Didn't realize it at the time, because what I thought was is that the date changed, but that the story didn't change, that the story essentially remained the same. But when I took note of the fact that the date was different, I noticed that it started to affect the story. And initially, it seemed as if it only affected the story affected the story in you know very simple little ways like okay so so okay so fine it wasn't in the winter it was in the fall so okay fine so i guess we can't sing the christmas carols that say on a cold winter's night it was so deep okay so it was in the fall so it wasn't cold it was probably quite warm and pleasant outside because that's you know the middle east that's jerusalem bethlehem uh, Jesus born in September, that's not going to be cold at all. So that didn't necessarily make some big dramatic change, but over time, those details started to add up. And they added up in such a way that I went, wait a second, time out here. I got I to gotta relook at this here. Because what I came to realize is that my premise that, okay, the date, of his birth may have changed, but the story didn't change, was incorrect. That by changing the date, I was revealing a fact that wasn't accurate. And then when I would correct that fact and get to the and get to the accuracy of it, you know what that would do? That would reveal another fact that wasn't true. And I went, oh geez, wait a second. So whether it was the weather or whether it was the notion that you don't put an eight-month pregnant woman on the back of a donkey, or it was, it was, at first it was these little things, and then over time I began to realize, wow, this is really a different story. It's really, really a very different story, and especially when we put it in its historical context. And if you go back and listen to the archive shows that I've already done, you will hear some very in-depth historical research into what was going on in the background, uh, you know, when Jesus was born, primarily surrounding this character that most of us are at least vaguely familiar with, whose name is Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was the Roman-appointed king of Judea at the time that Jesus was born. And we're aware of him, you know, because of the traditional nativity story, where we hear about the wise men showing up, the magi, they show up from the east, and, and they announce to Herod, who... You know, see, these are diplomats. These are ambassadors from another nation. So they're following protocol by showing up at the royal court of the Roman-appointed king, right? They knew who Herod was. They already had established foreign relations between 
where the Magi would have come from, which is they would have come from the Parthian Empire, and the capital of the Parthian Empire was a city on the Tigris River called Stesiphon, and that's where they would have come from, right? And there already would have been established foreign relations. So this wasn't like some shot in the dark that all of a sudden they show up and Herod is like completely utterly surprised that they're even there. He would have had several days advance notice that they were on their way. If you part of my research has also been that I have a really pretty good idea what route they would have followed, that they there were very much established trade routes at that time and they would have followed those established trade routes because, and you know, we've talked about this before, this is not just three wise guys on the back of camels. This is a massive ambassadorial entourage because not only were there more than three ambassadors, there would have been all of their servants and all of their baggage and their camel train to carry all those their stuff, and there would have been a very significant military escort because even though there was a peace treaty at the time between Parthia and Rome, nonetheless, that's what, frankly, that's what allowed them to travel into Roman territory, frankly, without getting attacked, is because they would have followed the Euphrates Road northwest from Stesiphon until they hit a, a city that was known as Dura Europos, and Dura Europos was actually a city that was founded by Alexander the Great. And at the time of our story, Dura would have been the last fully Parthian city they encountered, right? So they would have traveled northwest along the Euphrates Road, gotten to Dura, they would have resupplied at Dura, and then they would have turned left and headed out due west across the desert. And about halfway between Dura, Europos, and then Damascus, was an independent city-state called Palmyra. And Palmyra is a very interesting location because they would have – it was an oasis city. It's literally in the middle of the desert. And because it's in the middle of the desert, it was hyper-rich because that's what they did is they serviced caravans that were traveling either east or west between Damascus and Dura. And they were the only place you could get food and water because all the rest of it was desert, right? So as a result – they were an extremely wealthy city, and they were independent. They were not under the control of the Parthians, and they were not under the control of the Romans. Okay, So the Magi's entourage would have traveled, like I said, Stesiphon to northwest to Dura, Dura west to Palmyra, and then Palmyra further west to Damascus. Now, Damascus was a Roman city, and it was administrated for the Romans by Herod the Great. So once they hit Damascus, that's when one way or another Herod would have found out whether the Magi themselves sent an advance rider to notify him that they were on their way, because that would have been protocol, or whether he had you know, his own network of communication that someone would have said, oh, hey, you know, we just had this massive entourage of Parthian uh, nobility uh, go through the city here, you need to know these guys are on their way, right? I have access to an historical record. It is, it's second, third, fourth hand, so we don't know that it's absolutely rock solid, but we, we have it nonetheless, even though it's 
removed by a couple stations here that says when the Parthian Magi traversed the city of Damascus and when they passed through the Esther Gate. So the Esther Gate is the eastern gate. It's the easternmost gate. And it's still standing today. So this is very, very provocative because you can look up on the internet and you can get a picture of the Esther Gate because it still stands, right? And if you look at the Esther Gate, there's a central gate and then there's two side gates to either side. And the idea was is that the central gate would handle the the cavalry, right? It was wide enough that you could probably get – it was probably 40 feet wide, this main gate. 40 feet wide, so I mean that's enough to put, my word, eight to ten horses across to go through that main gate and certainly carts and camels and stuff like that. And then the two side gates is where your personnel, your your walkers, you know, the guys that are just walking would pass through, right? But this historical record that I have says that this entourage, when they passed through the Esther Gate, it took from before sunrise – until afternoon for this entourage to pass through the gate. So this would have created quite a stir. And see, and this is connected to Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, which, you know, we know the record. We know the record. We all know it. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, And in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, in the rising, and have come to worship him. And then we blow right past verse number three. We, we pay, pay no attention. We go right by it because verse number three says, and, we're, and when Herod heard these things, he was greatly troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And Herod was an extraordinarily shrewd operator, extremely shrewd political operator. So, you know, I love using that phrase, three wise guys. You know, if it was just three wise guys on camels, that would not have concerned Herod for one minute, not one second. And if they were, even if they were legitimately a threat, he could have just made them disappear and no one would have known better. But. If this was an official ambassadorial entourage with military escort, that's a completely different story. And it's really a completely different story because of the backstory with regard to Herod. Because what a lot of people don't know about Herod is that when he was young and up and coming, his father was a court official. In the Judean court. See, Herod is not Judean. He was a Roman appointed king of the Judeans, but he himself was not ethnically Judean. So that's part of why you've got this really weird dynamic going on here of him not being liked by the people he ruled over because they looked at him as, well, you're a, you're a pretender. You're not a real king. You can't be a real king. You're not even from the right nation, let alone the right tribe or the right house, right? You're not even Jewish, let alone from the tribe of Judah or from the house of David. You're none of those things, so how can you be a real king, right? So his father was a court official in the Judean court. In the legitimate Judean court, his father 
was a court official and his father was extremely ambitious and he was trying to maneuver to get his two sons in position of power, two of his sons, he had more than two, trying to get them in positions of power because his name was Antipater. Antipater realized that he could basically run the country from behind the throne. He was one of those guys, you know, very Game of Thrones kind of thing here. I mean, this really is, this is the true Game of Thrones because this is, this is historical fact. This actually happened, right? So he's, he's trying to run the country from behind the throne. He's manipulating the, the Jewish rulers that are in charge, and he's maneuvering his sons to get them in position of power. And he had gotten – this was very – here's a little side note here, a very interesting story. When the civil war happened between the Roman generals Pompey and Caesar – and Caesar had effectively won. Pompey had essentially been defeated. Pompey fled to Egypt, where he was murdered by the Egyptians. And when Caesar arrived, that made him very upset, not only because he wanted to kill Pompey himself, but also because, ironically, they were old friends, and he was a Roman, and he was very upset that the Romans took matters into their own hands and, and murdered a Roman, right? But when Caesar arrived there, he got caught up in a civil war that was actually going on in Egypt at that time between Cleopatra and her little brother. Okay, And this is the Cleopatra that we have all heard about from history. She's de facto queen of Egypt, but her brother wants to be king of Egypt, and they're engaged in a civil war. Julius Caesar sides with Cleopatra, and... Next thing you know, he finds himself surrounded. He, they, they, they move, he brought a very small army, and he throws his power behind Cleopatra, and next thing you know, he's surrounded. He sends for reinforcements, but they take a minute to get there, because these Roman legions that he sends for, for um, reinforcements, they got to do this end around, around the end of the eastern Mediterranean, and come down across the Sinai Peninsula into Egypt, and they get down in that area, and they're not really keen on just invading Egypt across the desert like that, because these legions were not trained desert fighters. And so they needed trained desert fighters to throw in with them and to, frankly, be the vanguard that would, you know, make the first move here. So, gee, guess who shows up but Antipater? It's an Antipater who is a desert fighter. That's who, who he is and what he is. He was an Idumean. It was a, a, a variation of what we would today call an, an Arab, basically, is really what it boils down to. And he put together his little private army. And he comes down, and you ready for this? He rescues Julius Caesar. He rescues Julius Caesar. I mean, how many? How often do we ever hear this part of the story? So, as because of this, and I'm just you know bouncing off some some factoids here, but Caesar handsomely rewards Antipater and his two sons because of this. So he makes Antipater. The procurator, in other words, the governor of Judea. So it's actually Antipater that's in charge of Judea because of Julius Caesar. And he also appoints um, Antipater's son Faisal 
to be the governor of Jerusalem, and he appoints his son Herod. There we go. There's our name. He appoints Herod to be the governor of Galilee. And just as they are starting to solidify their rule and starting to run the country because of having been rewarded by Caesar and stuff like that, Caesar gets assassinated, Antipater gets assassinated, and then Mark Antony is now the new Roman power in the east, so Faisal and Herod have to negotiate with him to retain their positions, which they do. I mean, uh, Anthony was smart when it came to that kind of thing. He realized that these were exactly the men he needed in positions of power. But you know, now Faisal and Herod, they don't have their father to rely on anymore. Now they're running the country for Mark Antony. And Mark Antony, he gets involved with Cleopatra, and he's off playing around and not really paying attention is really what it boils down to. And he's not paying attention, and guess what happens? The Parthians invade. The Parthians invade Judea. And Faisal, um, to this day, we're uncertain whether he committed suicide or whether he was murdered. It's unclear. The Josephus has two different records, and one says one thing and one says the other. And It's not clear whether he was murdered by the Parthians or whether he committed suicide because he was going to be murdered by the Parthians. But this is bad because the Parthians are now – they've overrun the country. They've overrun the country, and Herod wisely decided to stay in the back, to stay in the rear in case everything went sideways because the reason – Faisal got murdered because he went to negotiate with them, and the Parthians pulled the fast one on him and killed him. So now what does Herod do? But Herod engages in a strategic retreat, and he flees. First of all, he goes to Petra in Jordan because that's where his in-laws are from. He's hoping to get financial and military support there. That doesn't happen. So then he flees to Alexandria in Egypt because he's expecting to find Mark Anthony there. Mark Anthony is not there. So Cleopatra puts him on a ship to send him to Rome where he finally catches up with Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony introduces him to Augustus Caesar because, you know, Julius Caesar's dead at this point. And they, Mark Anthony and uh Augustus, they realized that Herod is the perfect person for the job. Herod didn't actually go there seeking to be made the ruler of Judea. He was just going there to get financial and military aid. But when he got there, they're they're the ones that went, oh my god, this is perfect. We need to appoint him the king of Judea. So it was actually Mark Anthony and Augustus that took Herod to the Roman Senate and had him appointed – king of the Jews, and then gave him a Roman army to go drive the Parthians out of Judea and take control of the country again and then rule it for Rome. So that's the backstory that a lot of people are unaware of, is that 35 years before the Magi show up at the court of Herod the Great, he had actually fought a war against the same nation, driving them out. Why? Because they had invaded the country, staged a coup, 
and installed a king of their choosing on the throne. Now, now let me repeat that in case that wasn't exactly clear, right? 35 years before the Magi showed up, the Parthians had invaded Judea, and as a result of invading Judea, they staged a coup, and they put a king on the throne that would be pro-Parthia and anti-Rome. So that's why Herod goes to Rome, they appoint him king, they give him an army, he goes back, he drives the Parthians out, and for the next 35 years, he, ro- he rules the Roman province of Judea. It's, the, it's still an independent kingdom, but it's under Roman control, because Herod is doing this at the behest of Rome, right? So now, 35 years later, this is my point here, and this is for, for the listeners. Look at the extraordinary similarity here. Herod faced the same obstacle 35 years ago, and all of a sudden, a very large Parthian entourage shows up with military escort. They go to Caesarea Maritima first. That was Herod's capital. That was uh, Herod built that entire city. It didn't exist before Herod the Great. And he built a port, and he built his, his civil capital at Caesarea. So when that entourage would have passed through Damascus, like I said, they would have traveled now southwest at this point, and they would have gone down and they would have hit Caesarea, Phil, uh, not Philippi, Caesarea Maritima first, expecting to find Herod there because that was his administrative capital. But then they didn't find him there. So that's why they pushed on to Jerusalem. Right, and so when they so even though Herod knew they were coming, nonetheless, when they finally get there and they do their official handshakes, and this is all very you know protocol and ambassadors and foreign dignitaries and et cetera et cetera and all that stuff, and they get down to the point and they say, well, why are you here? And look at how extraordinarily bold these men are. They say. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? In other words, where is the legitimate king? Because we know you're not him. I mean, it is stunning how bold they are in saying that. But look at how much sense this makes now. It makes so much more sense when you put it in its historical context and you realize that Herod had faced this exact same equation 35 years earlier that the Parthians had invaded, they had staged a coup, and they had put a king of their choosing on the throne. So that's why he thinks that's exactly what is going on again. Okay? Now let me help you out some more here, because I have new information that, because I, even though I've been doing this for 35, 40 years, I gain new information all the time, and when I get this new information, I want to share it with my audience, my website, share it with your audience. I have some new, really exciting information to share with you about these guys, because the the Magi, we actually were learning more and more and more about the Magi all the time, all right? For a long time, we did not know who they were. 
And there was reason for that, and that was because a lot. Number one, they didn't keep historical records very well. The Parthian Empire did not, and they didn't. And then, what records they did keep? They didn't keep them the way we would today. Ancient history is very different than modern history. We oftentimes make the mistake of looking backwards through the lens of modern history, and we assume they did it the same way we did, and they they didn't. You know, but make a long story short here, we have recovered tens of thousands of clay tablets from the deserts of Mesopotamia. And these clay tablets are written in a text called cuneiform, which is one of the most difficult texts to translate in the world. So it's taken a long time for the scholars to translate these tens of thousands of tablets that we have. And then there's a, a, an interesting little curveball in the mix here as well, which is the fact that an extraordinarily high percentage of these clay tablets are astronomical in nature. So the scholars, when they start translating these tablets and they run into an astronomical tablet, they're like, Oh, good grief. I don't want to learn more about the the astrology of these ancient people. I want to learn other stuff about these guys. So what they'll do is they'll they'll take one of these astronomical tablets and they'll just set it aside for a moment, right? And ignore it because they want, oh, I want the ones that are about this or the tablets that talk about this or the tablets that talk about that or talk about this. And what they came to realize over time is, the tablets that they want, they don't exist. The tablets they have are the tablets they have, right? So what they did is they did a U-turn. They went back and said, well, you know, we just got to – we have to approach this differently. We have to translate the tablets we have, and then we have to glean from them the information we're hoping to find. Since we can't find a document that's about what we want it to be about, then we just got to glean bits and pieces. But here are some extra bits and pieces that we have learned over time, which is that the Parthians had what was called a bicameral government. Now, if you know your forms of government, you'll recognize that when I say bicameral, we have a bicameral government here in the United States. We have a House and a Senate, a House of Representatives and a Senate. Bicameral simply means two houses, right? So the Parthian Empire had a bicameral government. It's one of the earliest bicameral governments on record. And the upper house was simply the royalty. Okay, And the royal dynasty at that time was a family called the Arsakids. Right? So the Arsakids were the royal family. They were the royal house. That was the upper house of Parthian parliament, so to speak. And then the lower house was comprised of seven noble families. So this is the lower house. And the lower house was called collectively the House of Magistanes. So in other words, this is the Magi. That's who this is. Okay? So it was it was effectively the nobles, and it was specifically seven noble families, right? Now, several hundred years later, during a period of time where there was a revived Persian Empire called the Sassanid uh, dynasty, 
at that time, there was also a House of Majestanes that was also run by seven noble families. So there is the high probability that the seven noble families from several hundred years later are the same as the seven noble families from several several hundred years earlier. Now we don't know don't know that for certain, but it's a reasonable conjecture. But what we do know is that there were two or three of the families of the seven that we have absolutely established were the same. Okay? And one of these is very important, which is there was one house in particular that held the hereditary right of that the whole and, and so here's here's the thing. The whole house of Majestanes, part of their job was to choose the king. That's what they did. So even though you had the upper house that was the royalty, the Arsakids, the Parthians did not practice, this is very interesting, they did not practice what is called the right of primogeniture. And the right of primogeniture simply means that when the king would die, that his oldest son would become king. That's not how it worked in the Parthian Empire. In the Parthian Empire, when the king died, the house of Magistanes determined who the next king would be. They would consult genealogies, they would interpret dreams, they would read the stars, they would do all these things to determine who the next king would be, because maybe it should be the king's son, or maybe it should be the king's brother, or something like this, right? So it was the house of Magistanes that determined the next king, and then it was one of these noble houses in particular that when it came time to coronate the king, they would literally place the, the crown on the king's head. When they would have the coronation ceremony, there was one noble house in particular that coronated the king. Okay, and I'll tell you the name of it here in just a minute. So now, just kind of hold that thought for just a second, and we're just going to turn a little bit to the side and come right back. In this same general time frame, there was a very famous battle between the Romans and the Parthians. At a place called Karai. That's what it's called in Roman history. Biblically, we would recognize it as the city of Haran, where Abraham traveled. And it took place outside of Haran, outside of Karai, in the desert. And what happened was, is that a very clever Parthian general lured the Romans into a trap and just embarrassingly defeated them. I mean, really bad. I forget the numbers off the top of my head, but if I remember correctly, I think the Romans went in with an army of about 60,000 and left with an army of about 20,000. I mean, the Parthians just destroyed them. And it was because they had a very clever general who used a very clever tactic because the Parthians were a horse culture, right? That's something... The listeners here, you can you can start putting this put the put a new mind picture in your head because we think that the Magi were these three guys on camels. No, not likely, not likely at all. These men would not have used camels as personal transport. 
they would have used camels as for their baggage train, but personally they would have ridden ridden uh, horses. That's what they, they were a horse culture, and their cavalry was their main weapon, and that was how they so soundly defeated the Romans was by using their cavalry. So here's now where it starts to come together and to formulate a very different picture of what it looked like when the Magi arrived. Because the general who defeated the Romans, his name, he's got got about seven names, but he's known most commonly as simply Serena, S-U-R-E-N-A, Serena, General Serena. And he was, here you go, he was the head of the noble house of Surin. He was a Magi. That's who this guy is. And we have historical records primarily from Plutarch, because Plutarch wrote about, you know, Plutarch was a Roman historian, and he wrote about this defeat. So therefore, we do have some record of who, who Serena was, even from the Roman side. But Serena was this very clever general who so soundly defeated the Romans. But now we now we have a different picture here. He's he's a general. He's a milit Shannon. He's a military general. And he is the head of the House of Surin. That means he's a Magi. Wow. He is a a Magi. And ready for this? The House of Surin, this is the royal house. Or not, not the royal house, the noble house. This is the noble house that retains the hereditary right to crown the king. That is what they do. That is what they do. So Serena defeats um, the Roman general Crassus at the Battle of Carai, embarrasses them, and he becomes enormously popular because of this, because of this defeat, which is really interesting because you want you want to, I already mentioned it, we're going to do it again. You want to put on your Game of Thrones here. Here you go, right? So Serena becomes enormously popular because of defeating Crassus. So popular that he is considered a threat by the Parthian king, and the Parthian king executes him. Oh, my word. So here it is, right? Game of Thrones on steroids, because now the house of Surin is not going to support the royalty, because they murdered their leader. So here you have the house that is supposed to, the noble house that is supposed to crown the king, and they're saying, "Okay, yeah, you know, you murdered our guy. Uh-uh, we are not, we are not going to support you. Forget it, right?" But ironically, guess what happens? The king's son murders him. So now the House of Surin throws their support back behind the royals again. So they, they, so the Arsakids had the loyalty of the Surin, 
but then they lost it. But now they have it back because they feel that they were avenged because the king's son murdered the king, right? So now this is the king of Parthia, whose name is Phraates IV. And, oh, gee, just a coincidence here. He ascends the throne of Parthia the same time that Herod ascends the throne of Judea. Same time. They're the same age, roughly. They're, they ascend the throne at the same time. So for the next 35 years, Herod is the king of Judea, and Phraates is the king of Parthia. And Phraates has the loyalty of the house of Surin until Phraates IV gets murdered by his son, Phraates V. And guess what happens? The house of Surin they pull their loyalty from the royals again. But check out the timing. Phraates the Fourth died in four pardon me, Phraates the Fourth died in two BC. Jesus was born on September eleventh of three BC. The Magi are engaged in their standard celestial observation and then And what they're doing is they're seeing this um, unprecedented series of royal signs involving the king planet, uh, Jupiter, the king star, Regulus, in the royal constellation of Leo. They are seeing this, like I said, unprecedented series of signs that are just screaming, royalty, royalty, royalty. King, 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 right? They're already doing this because that was just part of what they did. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, their king gets murdered. And the house of Surin will not support the son because he murdered the royalty. And and it's their job. Shannon, it's their job. It's their job to find the new king of Parthia. Wow. So now, you know, we know we don't know this for absolute certain, but all the pieces fit together that it was members of the house of Surin, the noble house of the house of Magistanes, that holds the hereditary right to crown the king of Parthia, that traveled to Jerusalem seeking the new king. And it makes complete sense, and it's, you know, like I said, do we know absolutely that this is what happened? No, we don't know absolutely that this is what happened, but we now have pieces of a historical puzzle here that make complete sense. And now here's the last piece of the puzzle I'm going to throw in that makes makes this so exciting. When Plutarch wrote about the general Serena, who defeated Crassus, he mentioned Serena's entourage. Okay? Serena traveled around just for normal everyday business with a cavalry escort of 10,000 cavalry. He traveled around with 200 wagons, 
for his wives and concubines, a thousand camels for his baggage, and then a cavalry escort of 10,000 cavalry. Wow. That is one magi. One magi. We have no clue what showed up at Herod's court other than it had to be huge because, as I said earlier on, there's a historical record that says when they passed through Damascus, it took from before sunrise until afternoon for them to traverse the Esther Gate. I shared this. <laughs> I, have, I have an older brother who's a military man, and um, I shared this with him. And he said, and I, I could just see the gears churning in his head because he was, you know, he's ex-military. And he said, Tim, when I was in the 101st Airborne, and we were in Germany, and he said, and we had to have this one ceremony and this one parade. And he says, and we had to parade 16,000 guys past this one point. And he said, now granted, this is all highly organized and stuff like that. This is modern military, and I mean, and we're moving quickly, and you know, we didn't have horses and camels and stuff like that. He says, so there's no doubt in my mind that the ancient one would have moved much slower than we were, right? He said, but to put 16,000 guys past that parade platform like we did, he said, dude, that took us three hours for us to move 16,000 guys. <laughs> so it was really interesting to watch the wheels churn in my, in my brother's head because, you know, having a military guy to help you understand this, but... My point here now is that we have extraordinarily sound, verifiable historical information that may not tell us exactly what happened, but boy, are we getting close here. We are getting really, really, really close that when Phraates IV of Parthia died, the house of Surin, which was the noble house that would have chosen the king, left Stesiphon. It would have taken them eight to nine weeks to make the journey. The, the and, and it's funny here because the chronology fits very perfectly. When, when It says when they arrived at Herod's court, they said, we have seen his star in the rising, which I, I won't, we'll do this on another episode. I'll tell you exactly what that is. But it was the heliacal rising of the planet Jupiter in conjunction with Regulus in Leo on July 29th of 3 B.C. And then there, following that, there would have been 15 months of unprecedented celestial signs, 15 months. So that 15 months drops them into October or November of 2 BC, which is when they would have left Stesiphon. It would have taken eight or nine weeks for them to make it to Jerusalem, which ironically, see, it's very funny. Because we started this all out by saying, hey, you know, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. He was born in September. The shepherds found a baby in a manger. The magi found a young child living in a house because it was 15 months later. The magi would have, and, and also we're told that the shepherds, there was really no commotion. What, even though they f discovered the Messiah, and it says that they shouted it to anybody who would listen, nonetheless, it raised no commotion whatsoever. 
When the Magi arrived, however, it said Herod was greatly troubled in all Jerusalem with them. That's because they showed up with an army of ten to 20,000 cavalry to put the rightful king on the throne. And in Matthew, when it says Herod told them to go to Bethlehem, right, we're told that they went outside and they looked up and they said that the star that they had seen in the rising went before them and stood over where the young child was. And like I said, we'll do this on another episode. I'll describe to you exactly what it was they saw. But this is called the Stations of Jupiter. They would have been meticulously tracking the planet Jupiter. And the planet Jupiter does this crazy thing every, in its annual cycle, it does this thing called retrograde motion. And when it goes into retrograde motion, it appears to stand still. So that's what it's talking about that it went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. So it appears as if it's standing still. So the amazing thing about this, like I said, is it starts with the heliacal rising of Jupiter in July of 3 BC. Jesus is born in September of 3 BC. There's 15 months of unprecedented signs that would have ended in October or November of 2 BC. Then it's an eight- or nine-week journey by the Magi to Jerusalem. They would have arrived in late December. So here's where Christmas comes from. It's highly probable that the Magi actually arrived at the court of Herod the Great on December 25th. And that that's why we think that's when he was born, um, is because that's when the Magi arrived. Because the stations of Jupiter, because we can look it up using a computer, The stations of Jupiter, when it would have stood still over Bethlehem, would have been on December 28th and 29th of 2 BC. That's verifiable. So isn't it interesting that, whoa, um, we pretty much know when the Magi were there. Late December of 2 BC. And then the really amazing thing is that Herod is, um, he's deathly ill at this point and he's losing it. He's, he's frankly going crazy. He's, got, he's already murdered two of his own sons several years earlier, and he's literally got a third son in prison awaiting execution as we speak, as the Magi arrived. So once more, Game of Thrones here, look at the insanity of what is going on here, that the Herod is sick, he's losing his mind, he's freaked out over the throne, he's already murdered two of his own sons, he's got, he's got a third son in prison, and then this army shows up and says, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Where's the legitimate king? Because we know you're not him. And I actually went a direction tonight I didn't intend to go, but the reason I shared all this, and I'll elaborate on this in another episode, is because the reason I'm doing this research is not to just hammer on the traditional nativity story and go, oh, come on, guys, that, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, blah, blah, yeah, that is not what I'm after here. I'm trying to paint this picture of what it really would have looked like. And the reason I'm doing that is because 
of how much truth matters to followers of Jesus. You know, Scripture tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that God cannot lie. And have you ever really thought about the practical ramifications of what it means that you cannot lie? Not just that you don't lie, you cannot lie, right? So this just really stresses the necessity of truth and the necessity of carrying around in our hearts and in our heads as accurate a picture as we can about what really would have happened because that helps us understand the man, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word of God, Jesus Christ, better than we would if we're carrying around pictures that the Bible doesn't actually support. So there's a little bit of uh, new insight for you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, about who the Magi were from history and how this really would have looked when Herod the Great said he was very troubled in all Jerusalem with him. This is exciting research that you were are doing and new information that you've uncovered uh, for those that just may be tuning in for the first time Tim uh, give out any contact information you'd like tell people how they can uh, follow more of your work and support your ministry absolutely uh, my website www.godsavetheking.org you can use the contact uh, button there sign up for my newsletter or if you simply want to contact me by email that is contact.godsavetheking at gmail.com, and you can reach me there. And I uh, would love to hear from you. I'm happy to accept invitations to speak, podcasts, live, etc., etc. And uh, just, yeah, hit me up, and we'll have a chat. Awesome stuff tonight. What shall we title this for the archive this evening? Oh, that's a good one. Well, why don't we call it the House of Surin? Ooh, spell that for me. S-U-R-E-N, the House of Surin. Oh, I love that. Okay, excellent, excellent stuff. One more time, uh, your email address also? Contact.GodSaveTheKing at gmail.com. Fantastic. My friend, thank you for coming on. And uh, look at your schedule. Let me know what you've got available for your next date. And let's get this thing uh, going again. Yes, sir, will do. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, brother. Thank you, sir. God thank bless. you, brother. God bless. Hey, what an honor to have Tim Keyes on. What an honor. Praise the Lord. Folks, let's go to a song, and we'll be back here in a minute. 